Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Is it really only Wednesday? I just I have to check the calendar here. I uh, it already feels like this is a long week, and it's it's going to get worse. So so I apologize in advance for for that, uh, and to to our guest David Priest, who comes back on the podcast. David, I think you've been on the podcast more than thirty times now. Have I really? Wow, I think so. it, do, it doesn't I seem like a single podcast over twenty nine. No. Uh, so my apology to you is I'm looking at my notes for what we're going to talk about today. And literally, this is what I have written down. Okay. Chris Christie, Paul Gosar, Michael Lindell, Michael Flynn, Sidney Powell. Ooh, my spleen (laughs) hurts. What fresh hell is this? And I know that people are going, okay, are you really going to do this again? Yeah, we are. Um, Well, we are. And I, I, I was I was inspired today uh, by George Orwell, as I often have over the last five years, who uh, once said, to see what is in front of one's nose needs a constant struggle. And, it, you know, this is the problem, is that you don't want to say the same thing over and over again. It, it, some of the stories seem like they're same old, same old, and yet you don't need to invent new things to be interested in or outraged about. Just look at like what is right in front of our nose and yeah and, it's not repeating for, the same things over no. and over it's it's pointing out that these things aren't going away and if we pretend they are because we don't want to hear them that doesn't solve any problems well, well exactly and so what i did in my newsletter and i i'd planned to do something about higher education and, and etc and then i thought no you know what i every once in a while you need to take a deep breath and say okay we need to remind people what is the central reality of our political world and so i said let's take a moment to look at what's in front of our noses today and i posted a picture of the former and perhaps future president of the united states sitting down for an interview with my pillow guy mike lindell and i said look we have to contemplate what we're seeing here old story but but really you know former future president of the united states sitting down with one of the wooliest, most demented figures in our cracked political culture. I mean, Mike Lindell, if you had to draw like a a sort of a line of, you know, cynical grifter to absolutely insane, Mike Lindell's at the at the completely insane level. I mean, the guy needs medication. He doesn't need more interviews. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, there's something deeply wrong with this guy. Here's somebody that's been predicting that President Trump will be reinstated hmm. by a unanimous vote of the United States Supreme Court. Now, David, in, in our normal lives, if somebody said that to you, you'd <laughs> you'd call a relative, right? Yeah. You'd, you'd say, okay, so-and-so, Mike's off his meds again. Can we get Mike's an intervention? Yeah, I would think, you know, the first thought is you want to to reason with the person and say, you know, what what happened to you in your social studies class in 10th grade that you totally misunderstand United States government. That's my first yeah. instinct is it's a it's an education or a, a knowledge problem. Show, show but then me where you, they hurt you. you. You see him talk about it and it's like he's he's seized with the spirit, like he's completely manic about it and and that's where you have to wonder if it's if it's not a matter of not knowing better. It's a matter yeah. of being completely possessed by this insane idea. I'm sorry, there's something wrong with the man. I mean, I, I I think we've moved past outrage to, it's kind of pathetic. But but again, this is what's right in front of us. The former president of the United States trafficking in this undiluted, straight, barking at the moon, batshit crazy stuff. And yeah. The reason I bring this up is the Republican Party seems absolutely intent on putting him back in the Oval Office. So yeah. uh, I, I I apologize for going over this stuff again, um, repeating the 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 obvious. 
But sometimes you do need to struggle to note the obvious. Yeah, I, I just it's give, give yourself some credit, Charlie. If yeah. if if this were literally every day and all you were doing was talking about my pillow guy and uh, and Michael Flynn and Paul Gosar every single day, every time. But guess what? Yeah, I mean, you talked to to Brian Kloss about you know corruption. You talked with yeah, uh, Tim great. about the downfall of the IRA and N NRA. I mean, yeah. we've been hitting a lot of different topics here, yeah. and I think it's important to come back to this and point out. You know what? There, there's still a major problem, and we can't pretend it's not there. Well, that's right. It's, it's sort of like okay, so let's say there's a giant asteroid heading toward the Earth, and at a certain point, you know, in the first week, you go, "Hey, there's a giant asteroid headed toward the Earth. It's coming here. It will destroy life as we know it." And in week two, somebody would say to you, "Would you just? You are obsessed by this asteroid." Why do you keep talking about the asteroid? Isn't there anything else? I think you suffer from asteroid uh, derangement syndrome. Yes, but the fucking asteroid is still coming <laughs> right straight at us. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah. so um, a couple of uh, sound bites. Uh, speaking of same old, same old, the uh, House of Representatives is likely to vote today on a resolution that will uh, censure uh, the deplorable congressman from Arizona, Paul Gosar perhaps stripping him of his committee assignments. Uh, I, I, again, um, stop me if you've heard this before, 95% or more of the Republican conference will side with Gosar, will vote against holding him accountable in any way. This is the same Republican conference that, that expelled Liz Cheney from leadership. So we kind of, we kind of know what the values are. So I don't know if you heard, uh, here's Gosar on um what what show is this? It's one of those, those, those random shows, uh, the Stu Peters show explaining how his uh, cartoon video of him um, uh, killing uh, AOC and uh, attacking Joe Biden was 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 really not harming anybody. Here's Paul Gosar. Where yeah. are the Republicans backing you? That's what I'm asking. Everywhere, Where are they? Everywhere. Well, I don't know. You know, we had conference this morning, so I explained to them what was happening. I did not apologize. I just said this this, this video had nothing to do with harming anybody. It's exactly what you're talking about. It's an anime. We were trying to reach out to the newer generation that likes these anime, these these uh, cartoons fabricated in Japanese likeness. Yeah. Okay. So it was it was all about reaching out to the youngs, right? No, no, no apologies, no apologies at all, David. That's insulting and offensive to the youngs as well as to everybody else, right? The idea that well, you know, people of a certain demographic need to have cartoonish images of, of, of violence, actual, you know, portraying no kidding attacks, um, or else they won't be engaged. How embarrassing. I mean, how, how lowly, how lowly do you think of your own constituents to believe that? You and I are both old enough to remember when reaching out to the youngs and getting them engaged in politics was, you know, I am a bill. This is how a bill becomes a law. <laughs> but of course it can't, or it obviously can't be big birds since we're at war with, with big That's birds. Right. Things have changed. So just when you think that maybe Chris Christie is not totally full of shit, uh, he is on this amazing uh, media tour. Is, is there any outlet that other than this podcast that where he hasn't appeared? I mean, this is this is rather extraordinary, isn't it, David? I mean, you watch this sort of thing. I, I, I think that there's not a single cable channel or network that hasn't had uh, part of the Chris Christie, um, I don't know, apology tour, the Chris Christie reinvention tour. The Chris Christie who stood behind Donald Trump with the adoring shine box look um, now deciding that, hey, we need to move on from this. This was this is bad. We, yeah, we need to stand up against the crazy. 
There's a link here in my mind between this and the the Paul Gosar treatment, which is mm. this this focus on the attention economy. So Chris mm -hmm. Christie is out there because he's saying supposedly interesting things about Trump. Everybody wants to highlight him and kind of ignore most of what he did when he had hard choices to make. Now these are easy choices and he's, he's doing it anyway. There's almost nothing at stake, but it's, it's attention seeking behavior. Paul Gosar, you know, even if there is a vote to censure him, first of all, what took so long, it's not like, it's not like this video just came out yesterday, but finally they're getting to a potential censure vote. If they strip him of his committee assignments, then he'll be in that, what, that, that wasteland, that wilderness that no one pays attention to, like Marjorie Taylor Greene? Really? Right, you yeah. actually increase his attention because he doesn't have work to do anymore on committees. You give him more of a platform and more time to spout his madness. So for me, the, the whole Christy Gosar dynamic points to the fact that we, and we have to look at ourselves in this, it's all of us, we like the bright, shiny objects. We like the things that generate controversy. And yeah, we're, we're talking about Chris Christie because he's saying things that are getting attention. Um, I don't know how to cut that cycle off because sometimes there is actual newsworthy information in these things, but I don't think Chris Christie is offering anything new here that deserves the amount of attention he's getting. Well, okay. You, you made a couple of points about Gosar that I wanted to, uh, just to highlight what took so long. I mean, Gosar has been a deplorable member of, of Congress for some time, including when he actually spoke at a white nationalist, white supremacist uh, conference. I mean, this guy's been problematic. Um, that's number one. And number two, uh, the Republicans could have avoided this vote today if they had wanted to by taking some action. A serious political party would take some action about a Paul Gosar, which right. this party used to do. Remember when they took an action against uh, against a while, King, against Representative well, King, right, right. But they they ha they do have that muscle memory if they would do it. But I think they've decided that they are never going to take any action against a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Paul Gosar. Now, of course, if you're an Adam Kinzinger or you are a Liz Cheney and you have crossed, you know, the Orange God King, you know, you're going to be cast in doubt or darkness. But they're not going to do anything whatsoever. And the third point is, you know, I do agree with you that. The Democratic vote today is going to won't actually hurt Gosar, won't, uh, you know, won't silence him, actually will make him a bigger martyr. On the other hand, at least they're going to force Republican congressmen to go on the record. You're going Absolutely. to have to have, you know, and so you will have someone like my, my good friend from Wisconsin, Mike Gallagher, who, you know, was, you know, portrayed as, you know, one of the bright rising post Trumpian stars who, you know, on January 6th spoke out so strongly, uh, about, uh, Trump's need to, to shut all this down, but he's going to vote to, uh, basically side with Paul Gosar, like he sided with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I think that's something that, that if Democrats have uh, any sense whatsoever, um, asterisk there, um, that they will, uh, they'll hold them accountable to. So at least you get the vote. Okay. So Chris Christie, um, I was listening to his, uh, very interesting discussion with Nicole Wallace yesterday. And, and what made this interesting was you could tell that Nicole Wallace and, uh, Chris Christie go back a long way. So there's kind of a mutual recognition of one another, which means ironically enough that they could kind of punch back at one another without crossing over into, without melting down, which made it a very, very effective exchange. And I'm listening to Christie thinking, okay, better late than never. You know, I'll pick up any cudgel, you know, that it takes to defend ourselves against, you know, the next coup, whatever. He's going to be on the right side. But then 
she called him out on one rather fundamental thing. Let me play this one about a minute long soundbite where she calls him out for, uh, you know, claiming to write a book about conspiracy theories and disinformation. And yet somehow doesn't get around to talking about, of all people, Fox News. Let's play it. You know, the book is called um, it's about conspiracies and lies. And you really don't take on Fox News. Why not? Look, because the book was because because the book. No, I I don't watch it. But the book. Are you aware of what he does? Not really. I don't pay a lot of attention to it. It's a book with truth deniers, conspiracy theorists on the cover. And you attack CNN and the New York Times and MSNBC and not Fox. But excuse me, I don't attack them as conspiracy theorists or truth deniers. I talk about bias. It is bias more dangerous bias. to the country and than conspiracy theorists? No, but that's the third section of the book. I read Where that. I talk about the movement forward. In the center portion of the book, we talk about the conspiracy theories and the truth denying that went on with things like QAnon, Pizzagate, the election situation, John Birch Society. And that's what I talk about. Good. There's two sections of the book. And I'm sure accidentally you're conflating them. I'm not conflating them, but I don't think you you have, I don't think it's an intellectually <laughs> honest case to make against oh, conspiracy theories without taking on Fox News. Well, I could listen, then you can write that in your book. Well, I'm not trying uh. to rescue the Republican Party. Little thin skin there. Um, but yeah. it is interesting that Point little scored. exchange she says, Well, what about Fox News? Do you know what Tucker Carlson is doing? No, I don't watch. No, I don't know what he's doing. Really? Yeah. Really. Yeah, echoes of the this, I didn't see the tweet. Yes, very much so. Yeah, but uh, to me, but, if, if you know, I know we don't score these conversations like we do formal debates, but <laughs> point for Nicole Wallace. Um, yeah. She actually got him in a logical conundrum there, and he couldn't he couldn't get his way out of it. And it pointed to the big problem with Chris Christie for me, which is I'm with you. Which in a coalition of all democratic forces, when yeah. you need people to come together to respect the Constitution first and foremost, above policy preferences, above partisan preferences, you welcome everybody, even if they're late to the party, even if they are. Michael Cohen's, even if they are, you know, people who were in the administration doing horrible things, but they've come and see the light. That's what you need to build a coalition against that kind of a movement. The problem with Chris Christie is I don't trust him. Um, he's he's gone back and forth depending on which way the wind's blowing. He opposes Trump and then he supports Trump and then he says a few negative things about Trump and then suddenly he's with Trump again for re-election and now. When he's selling a book, he's saying some things that sound like he's not so sure about Trump, but I have no faith that next week he won't uh, turn around and say something completely the opposite if the winds have blown better for him in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, and the, the, the refusal to take on Fox, of course, is obviously part of a political calculation that he thinks that, uh, you know, he's burning some bridges, but he's not going to burn that particular bridge. So this is again kind of the uh, disingenuousness of uh, of Chris Christie. Okay, so you 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 jog my well. And by the way, you, and yeah. I, I don't feel the yeah. same way about people who have come out strongly and and firmly and consistently and put the money where the mouth is. The Liz Cheney's, the Adam Kinzinger's, yeah. the right. others who have come out. That's a different vibe because I don't get the sense that they're going to turn around tomorrow and say, "Oh well, I just checked the latest poll in my district and it's it's five five points more." pro-Trump than I thought. So I'm going to repudiate all that I've said in the last few months. I, I don't get that vibe from them, but Chris Christie, I could see that in a minute. 
Oh, you could definitely see that from from Chris Christie. Okay, so you 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 dug um, a, a thought um, a, mo- a moment ago uh, that, that was not on my list of things I was going to get to. I want to I want to talk about um, Michael Flynn and and Sidney Powell. Well, I suppose this does relate because um, Jonathan Carl's book is really amazing. I mean, the fact that he continues to come up with new information about yeah. the craziness, about how close we came uh, to a real constitutional crisis, how serious this was. It really is a remarkable read, and and in terms of the insanity right in front of us. I do want to talk about Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell in a moment. But I, I, I do, this, this does remind me that, you know, how many of these players, like, for example, John Bolton, might have made a difference if they had come forward in real time as opposed to waiting yep. until they wrote a book. And by the way, I'm not criticizing John, Jonathan Carls for this, but it is the the... I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we are reading these things now, but I, I keep coming back to this question. What if we had known this stuff during the impeachment proceedings, for example? What if we had known this, you know, when it was actionable as opposed to waiting months and months and months? If And John Bolton being, I think, kind of the poster child for all of this, deciding that he's not going to cooperate with the impeachment process because he's got this freaking book to sell. Right. There's a difference between a, a John Bolton and a Jonathan Carl here, and, and even a, a Woodward and Costa on the other side. Because with, with John Bolton, he, he is in the events, he knows what is happening, and he chooses not to come forward in the impeachment hearing and instead write a book later. For these reporters, some of the, the information they're getting was not contemporaneous. Some of the information they're getting is sources now or more recently, talking about what happened in the past. And they may not have had that information at that exact moment. So I give them just slightly more leeway, although I, I am a bit peeved at the authors who have something that is relevant to conversations, uh, and they decide to hold it for months and months for their book instead of getting it out in reporting when it might inform action. But that's different than a John Bolton, uh, who who had who had the information because he was in it. He was living well, the experience. Yeah, but but also the people who are now giving documents to the reporters, you know, had they, you know, and obviously they, they want to change, you know, fix their reputation. But if we had heard right. from the, the Mike Pompeos, if we had heard from the Bill Bars, if we had heard from some of these other folks at the time, uh, Chris Miller, who was the acting secretary of defense, if these people had spoken up, in a more timely manner, uh, if they had come forward with the documents that we are now reading, uh, the, I, I don't, I don't blame the reporters, but there are people who are in the process of, shall we say, you know, you know, trying to cleanse their reputation or you know, retrofitting their reputations yep. um, that I'm much more skeptical about. Yep, that's a valid point. Is the the people who have the information could have come forward earlier and. Not necessarily to the media. If they if they didn't feel like leaking to the media, then then fine. But at least go in front of an oversight committee because some of these issues are valid issues of congressional oversight, and that is a means that's available. And they made the choice not to do that. Okay. So speaking of books and speaking of insanity and crazy, um, I wanted to talk to you about uh, former General Michael Flynn. Oh. The National Security Advisor, and I underline this, you know, how powerful this person was for a time. Mm -hmm. According to Jonathan Carl's book, let me read you from this ABC report. According to the book, uh, Flynn, who had just received an unconditional pardon from President Trump after pleading guilty 
to lying to the FBI during the Russia probe, made a frantic call to a senior Trump intelligence official named Ezra Cohen, Mm -hmm. who previously worked under Flynn. Where are you? Flynn asked the official. Uh, Flynn told him to cut his trip short and get back to the United States immediately because there were big things about to happen. We need you, he tells the official. There's going to be an epic showdown over the election results. According to the book, Flynn urges Cohen that he needed to get orders signed, that ballots needed to be seized, that extraordinary measures needed to be taken to stop Democrats from stealing the election. As Flynn ranted about the election fight, Cohen felt his old boss sounded manic, Carl writes in the book. He didn't sound like the same guy he had worked for. Hmm. uh, Sir, uh, Cohen told Flynn, the election is over. It's time to move on. Flynn, according to Carl, then fired back, you're a quitter. This is not over. Don't be a quitter. Carl writes that after a few heated minutes, Flynn hung up the phone, and that was the last time the two men uh, talked. So... Hmm. Your thoughts about this, uh, you know, General Flynn is, is one of is become increasingly unhinged, but yeah. there he was in the very center of power back in 2017. Yeah, Michael Flynn, he worries me perhaps, you know, more than almost anyone else from hmm. the former administration, because you can disagree with the policies if you want, and you can even disagree with the devotion to Trump from people like a Mike Pompeo or a Steve Mnuchin, that's fine. Michael Flynn is a step beyond that, which is, you know, he's, he's taken it to such a level. You've heard the speeches that he's been giving and the things he's been saying. Listen, we've had previous national security advisors who, who didn't always do the right thing. Uh, back in the Reagan administration, Bud McFarlane pleaded guilty to four misdemeanor counts of withholding evidence from Congress. He was pardoned by Bush 41 for that, but but he did plead guilty. John Poindexter had more serious charges. He had, I think, five counts of lying to Congress and obstructing congressional committees investigating Iran-Contra. Now, those convictions were overturned because there was something about the judges thinking that uh, the witnesses may have been influenced by Poindexter's open testimony in those famous Iran-Contra open hearings. And then you had Sandy Berger in the Clinton administration. Um, after his term had ended, he went to the National Archives to review material regarding the 9-11 commission and the Clinton administration's policies towards Al-Qaeda. And he took five classified copies of a memo, stuffed them into his socks and got caught and then lied about it. Um, now, those are all national security advisors who have, who have done bad things. But I did not think that any of those three would be more likely to assist the Russian government than mm. the current administration, regardless of party. And that's where I worry about Michael Flynn. He was the national security advisor. For a matter of weeks, he had access to the highest level intelligence of the United States government. And if I had to put my money on whether he would right now, if it helped his cause, would he put that information before Vladimir Putin to help disrupt what he thinks is a corrupt Biden administration? Or would he be loyal to this current administration? I I fear we would have a national security advisor who actually sides with a foreign enemy because of his mania about the current administration. And that's a horrible thought. Well, this is relates to this, um, given how unhinged he is. And given the fact that, I mean, there's, there's some, there's something broken with him. I guess I had assumed that there was a vetting process within the U S military that would prevent somebody who was uh, really deranged from rising to the level of general. 
And so when we see some of these high-ranking officials go in this particular way, doesn't that kind of suggest that perhaps there's a flaw? Yes, and and you have to realize that the the United States military is an absolutely massive group of people. And it doesn't matter how good your vetting is when you're talking about millions and millions of people, there are going to be people who who not only enter the organization but rise through the organization despite some pretty massive managerial and personality flaws. So I I think it's understandable that once once in a while you'll get one of these. That's fine. The issue for me is, you know, how did the the fail safes not work even beyond that? And this is where it was a perfect storm. You'll recall that President Obama actually right. told President elect Trump, you really got to be careful with this Michael Flynn guy. Trust me on this. Well, it was the perfect storm because Trump probably thought every single thing Obama was saying was meant to set him up. Remember, this is the guy who, when the FBI director sat with him one-on-one in order not to make it a public event, in order not to shed a spotlight on it, to just highlight for him the fact that there was this dossier floating around saying some very unflattering things, and he wanted to make sure the president knew about it and wasn't surprised by it, that Trump immediately thought that this was a shakedown, that this was some kind of attempt to pin him down. That's his mindset. So when Obama tells him, you'd better be careful with Mike Flynn, where there's some pretty serious concerns about this guy. You can almost see Trump's head taking that as an endorsement of Flynn simply because Obama didn't like him. Of course, the the Steele dossier is back in the news this week because it's pretty clear that much of it was completely bogus and that anyone that relied upon it or regarded it as credible um, was grossly misled. So you have any thoughts about this? And, you know, I was thinking that we're waging this massive war with very, very high stakes against disinformation. And Mm -hmm. one could make the case that one of the worst pieces of disinformation was the Steele dossier. And it was embraced by many people in the media who, of course, um, are supposed to be the bulwark against disinformation. So right. your thoughts about that in retrospect? Yeah, what what we don't know about the Steele dossier is how much of it is just plain wrong um, because so much of it is simply unverified. Now, the good news is if you look at the actual details of things like the bipartisan Senate report that looked at Russian interference in the election, they didn't use the Steele dossier. They did not use that information. If you look at the intelligence community assessments that were being made about Russian interference in the election, they did not use the Steele dossier. They did not use that information because it was unverified and because there was no way to judge its credibility other than what was on the page itself. And that's not how a good Senate investigation happens, and that's not how good intelligence analysis happens. So the Steele dossier, regardless of how much of it ultimately turns out to be flawed or incorrect, wasn't used in these fundamental assessments of what was going on. The conflation of the two, the conflation of the Steele dossier equals all of the concerns about Russia. Right. That's just a false narrative that's been created on its own, using one bit of misinformation to create a larger narrative of misinformation. And I think we need to be honest about that. Well, and and this has thrown up a lot of dust and smoke about all of this, because now the whole idea of the Russia hoax has become um, received wisdom now on the on the right, that that everything um, that anybody ever said about Russian collusion um, was false and has been discredited. And I know that that Adam Schiff is out with a book and he's being ripped by all the usual suspects about it. But and, and of course, you know, Adam Schiff, like many others, you know, may have made some mistakes, but, you know, 
to say that the Mueller investigation exonerated the president or to suggest that, in fact, uh, all of the concerns about Russian interference were bogus is just not supported by the evidence. And yet that's where we're at here. I mean, that's I, mean right. I, I, I know you spent a great deal of time going through the Mueller report, going through the the bipartisan Senate intelligence report. And it does seem as if those all of that information has been overshadowed by this spin now about the Steele dossier. Yeah, to me, it's it's disingenuous because when it is when, when it is pointed out to these commentators that no, in fact, if you read the actual text, whether it's the Mueller report or whether you read the actual text of the bipartisan Senate committee report, the Steele dossier ain't in there. That that's not fundamental to any of the claims they're making. There was separate evidence. There's separate issues going on, and then they continue to say it. Then at that point, it's just disingenuous. And the and the Trump campaign Russia ties were a real thing. They were a thing, and and the Mueller report goes through it in great detail. The collusion was never a legal standard. The Senate report also documents it. So this whole notion that everything was a hoax, which apparently is now orthodoxy on, you know, everything from, you know, the the Wall Street Journal to the the, the Federalist, uh, that's just revisionist history. But but it, but it's one that they're going to go with that, you know, that Donald Trump was was not only innocent, but that he was he was an innocent victim of this this terrible underhanded smear campaign. I mean, that is the alternative reality. And you, you're going to see this between now and 2024. Anytime you bring it up, it's like, see, this this is, you know, the the entire opposition has been discredited. And I don't know how to get people to go back and read the Mueller report again. Well, I don't think you can. We no. we tried at Lawfare by producing the audio narrative, yeah. the report to get at it. And that, I mean, honestly, that still gets thousands of downloads. Yeah. It's amazing. People still do want to listen to it. But I wonder if it's a bit of the preaching to the choir syndrome. Uh, I'm not sure we're getting through to the people who need to get that fundamental message. And um, maybe it's time to, to move on to counter new disinformation instead of fighting that last one. But it is available for people who want to do it. Okay, so um, before we move on from the insanity and the crazy, uh, mentioned the Jonathan Carl book talking about what Michael Flynn did. The, weirdly enough, that is not the craziest thing that's being reported today um, that was being done by Trump World. Betrayal, the book, uh, also reports that Sidney Powell, Flynn's former lawyer who was then advising Trump, also called the same official, this Ezra Cohen, shortly after the Flynn conversation. <laughs> I guess I have to read this because you cannot make this stuff up. And he tried to enlist, she tried to enlist his help with one of the most far-fetched claims about the election involving then CIA director Gina Haspel. Yeah, this is Gina Haspel, crazy. No, this I'm, is really, this is, I'm sorry. Wow. Is a, how else do you describe it other than batshit crazy? Gina Haspel has been hurt and taken into custody in Germany, Powell told Cohen, pushing the, a false conspiracy theory that had been gaining steam among QAnon followers, according to the book. You need to launch a special operations mission to get her, Powell said. Powell, according to the book, was pushing the outlandish claim that Haspel had been injured while on a secret CIA operation to seize an election-related computer server that belonged to a company named, how do you pronounce it, Seidel, uh, S-C-Y-T-L, none of which was true. The server, Powell claimed, contained evidence that hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of votes, had been switched using rigged voting machines. Powell believed that Haspel, the CIA director, had embarked on this secret mission 
to get the server and destroy the evidence. In other words, the CIA director was part of the conspiracy, Carl mm -hmm. writes. Powell wanted the Defense Department to send a special ops team to Germany immediately. They needed to get the server and force Haspel to confess. Cohen, Ezra Cohen, thought, and this is according to this ABC report, thought Powell sounded out of her mind, according to the book, and he quickly reported the call to the acting defense secretary. Yeah. Okay. Certainly so, nice Certainly nice of Mr. Cohen uh, or those around him to be giving all this information to Jonathan Carl now. I'll go back now. to your earlier point, which is, where the hell were you when this actually mattered more? Um, because this, this is clear evidence of not just not just bad political thinking, but delusional thinking. You think the CIA director engages on, you know, personal missions that she personally is doing a Jason Bourne, James Bond type operation, and you're going to send special ops forces into an allied country to grab her and, and what used enhanced interrogation methods to force her to confess to being part of a deep plot about voting machines. It, you can't make this up. This would be rejected by Hollywood writers as too crazy okay. for fiction. No, see, okay, that, that is literally true. I do think that nobody would actually put this into a script, which then brings me back to the whole Steve Bannon, um, Mark Meadows story, uh, both of them refusing, of course, to cooperate with the investigation into January 6th. This is, again, I'm, and I'm sorry to keep going back over this ground, but it's very clear from these books that there's a lot that we did not know and a lot that we desperately need to know because it was dangerous. It affects not just our democracy, it affects the national mm -hmm. security. It really is relevant, not just historically, but going forward, especially uh, when we're talking about a Trumpian restoration. And yet the Republican Party in Congress seems to be virtually 100 percent united in supporting the cover up in in supporting those members of the administration who have evidence, who could provide evidence, testimony, documents to the committee, to the American people, to right. Congress. Um, basically supporting them in their efforts to to stonewall against this. So, you know, again, we have this moment where as we are learning how dangerous this was and how important it is to find out what really happened, you have one of the major political parties that is completely without any shame whatsoever, basically saying, no, we're 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 with Steve Bannon. We're with Mark Meadows. It's a sad you know? it's a sad truth, Charlie, which is if if one is convinced that the current administration is actually going to destroy America yeah. as they see it. If if you think that this literally is the end, the ultimate Flight 93 election scenario, and you think that whether whether you think it's something you, you, you call communism or socialism, or whether you think it's because using a different gender pronoun is, is less important than preserving the Constitution, I, I don't know what the issue is. But if you think that this really is the end, then you can forgive anything else because there's that's nothing true. more important. And that's right. here's the part that's sad. It's not that. It's not that you have somebody like a Mike Flynn who, who, who might actually believe that. That's going to happen sometimes in a large population. It's the fact that so many, the vast majority of these members of the Republican Party in Congress, they do know better, but they look at their base and they see the most vocal people in their district saying this and decide, well, I'm just going to follow where my constituents lead. And it's not even all the constituents. It's it's the ones who are most loudly proclaiming this. 
Um, that's the sad part is the people who know better, who are in positions of leadership, who are doing anything but leading. Well, yeah, and you cannot understand American politics without understanding the dynamic you just described, which is the negative partisanship, that once you have completely demonized the other side, that gives your side basically a permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. You will never hold them accountable. You will never say they are wrong. Uh, and at the same time, we are upping the emotional ante. Uh, it is It is interesting that at a time when I think the objectively speaking, the threat of political violence is rising rather than having grown up say, Hey, maybe we had to chill out a little bit, you know, cool down the regular gasoline uh, on the fire. They are at, yeah. at, at, at virtually every single level and everything is being turned into some form of war. I, I, I tweeted out this morning about Christopher Rufo's having a normal one. I want to make it clear that I am not a fan of critical race theory at all. In fact, I spent, you know, decades writing about things like this. Um, and, and, um, you know, and there is a real problem, I think, um, not necessarily with critical race theory, it's being taught in the schools, but, uh, critical race theory adjacent type, uh, things, uh, uh, you know, you know, pushes for equity that result in uh, changing academic standards or the elimination of gifted and talented programs. Some of these uh, racial re-education programs that you're finding in American corporations. I mean, there are legitimate concerns, but then you have demagogues like Christopher Rufo, uh, who basically is saying that that anything that makes anybody uncomfortable, we're going to call critical race theory and we're going to demagogue this. And, and, and he's basically a charlatan. Well, he tweeted yesterday, let me just read you his tweet. It's time to clean house in America, remove the, the attorney general, lay siege to the universities, abolish the teachers unions and overturn the school boards. Okay. Wow. So yeah, you know, very serious thinker here. Look, look, I mean, there's, there are ways of discussing this. You could say, I disagree with the attorney general's position. You could right, say, hey, there's, there's a lot about the way he's done it. You can't. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you, I, I have written multiple books about what's wrong with American higher education. I don't know what laying siege means, though. Abolish yeah. the teachers union. I've been a critic of the teachers union. But the overturning the school boards, it's it's this sort of normalization of coup like. I mean, it's like everything needs to be uh, dialed up to a 15 on a scale of one to 10. Yeah, it's uh, the same characteristics of of a cult when you when you study those. It's the all or nothing mentality and the acceptance of it by people outside of that core which which gives it energy. And that's the dynamic that we we have to keep fighting because it it actually can take hold of otherwise rational people if they are convinced that there is no other option but to fight the real enemy. So, speaking of fighting, Actually, I'm making a very, very poor segue here. Um, I, I, I noticed that you, you're, you've been awfully busy over the last several years, but you are continuing. You're actually doing new stuff. You have a new, you have a new podcast too. Yes, I do. In uh, in conjunction with Shane Harris, the esteemed national security and intelligence correspondent at the Washington Post, Lawfare has a new podcast called Chatter, and in this podcast, Shane and I deliberately have one-on-one -on -one long form conversations. Uh, we haven't yet had one that has gone four hours like Sam Harris might do, but we're not ruling that out. Four but we're hours. talking about the cutting edge issues at the frontiers of national security and foreign policy issues. So we're going to be talking with people from, from Hollywood, uh, people with technology backgrounds, studying 
climate change, sports, culture, even astrobiology and poisons, uh, kind of the, the fun edges of national security and really diving deep on them in a less formal, more conversational format. And so far, it's been a lot of fun. Shane opened up with a conversation with Joe Weisberg, the creator of the hit TV show, The Americans, talking about his Love feelings about uh, working at CIA, which Joe did, and then turning into a Hollywood personality. Uh, I interviewed Adam Kinzinger, your friend and mine, mm -hmm. and we had an extended conversation about growing up in Illinois, core values, how you apply those to public service, and uh, got him to uh, take a stand about Top Gun and whether he's Team Maverick or Team Goose. And then <laughs> um, we have an episode just dropping at the end of this week where I talked to the former number two intelligence official during the Trump administration, Sue Gordon. But instead of talking all about the same questions she's answered over and over again about exactly what happened with Trump and when, we talked about the fact that she was a three-time captain of the Duke basketball team and what team sports taught her about leadership and how she applied that in her national security career. So we're trying to take it in different directions and have a lot of fun, but it's available on all podcast platforms. It's Chatter by Lawfare, and we are on Twitter at That Was Chatter. I am looking forward to it. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, Thank thanks you for joining me again, David. Thank you for coming back on the podcast. I think you are still, over the last several years, you are still our most frequent guest ever. I am honored. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.